and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world brought to you from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Janka Artland. I'm the director of the Asia program at ECFR. And this week, we have flipped things around a bit. We will talk about the age of unpeace and how connectivity causes conflict. That's the title of the new book of Mark Leonard, ECFR's director and your World in 30 Minutes host, who will not be asking but answering questions today as our guest. Hi, Mark. Welcome to your own podcast. It's a pleasure to host you. It's uh, even more of a pleasure to be your guest, Yanka. So, Mark, before we dive deeper into the substance of the book, it starts out with quite a personal take. And I would briefly like to speak about that. You're a real European. In your book, you describe how you came to run a think tank committed to fostering Europe's role in the world and the European project. Can you give those who haven't read the book yet the kind of slightly shortened version of how this came about? So, yeah, my life has been built on the benefits of internationalism and connectivity. My family history, my personal life, my professional life are all products of this incredible coming together that we've seen in the world over the last few generations. So I talk about my family history. My dad grew up in the shadow of the First World War, which his father fought in. He was evacuated as a young boy during the Second World War. And he was very much affected by that and ended up actually having a life which was very much trying to, to fight against nationalism and, and to put in place international solutions to, to stop the world going back to that state that it had been in his childhood. And on my mother's side, it's even more dramatic. She's a German Jew. She was born in hiding during the Holocaust and her entire kind of history was shaped by that. So I grew up with a family that was spread out all over the place, speaking lots of different languages. And in fact, the thing which gave my identity a kind of unity and some kind of meaning was the European project of bringing people from disparate backgrounds together. And I have spent far too much of my life on planes, in hotels, in different parts of the world, trying to understand how different places uh, work. I love the food that I've been able to get to know through all of this travel, the books and languages that I've learned, the, the kind of ability to stay in touch with friends from every corner of, of the world through the internet. So everything in my life, professional, personal, has been improved by connectivity. And yet in 2016, I had to face up to the fact that for many people in many countries, all the things which for me have, have brought security and opportunity and pleasure are seen as things which, which bring kind of risk and threats and vulnerabilities to them. And it's because a large number of people felt that they were being left behind by globalization and connectivity and could see the negative sides of it, that they voted for Brexit in 2016. And Donald Trump built his political platform on reaching out to the parts of the United States that felt that they were being left behind and that they were becoming strangers in their own countries. And those two events were quite big shocks to, to my worldview and to the global system. And when I tried to understand them more, what I realized was that they were just parts of a kind of red thread which runs through a lot of our geopolitics and our, our world, where connectivity, as well as bringing about enormous benefits to the world in terms of wealth, in terms of global understanding, in terms of technology is also unleashing dark forces 
in our societies, in people's everyday lives, which are quite scary and quite risky, and which are in fact creating conflict rather than removing it. What was the most striking kind of example of which that you've experienced over the last few years around this? Because you were in all of these conversations with all of these global thinking people. Um, what were the people that changed most around the last four years? Where does this resonate as well, you're thinking? Because I find that quite striking that someone like you, who is, has this background that you, that you describe, can come to these conclusions given the events that have taken place. Well, I've spent a lot of time over the last few years, traveling around the UK and meeting people who were Eurosceptic and who who kind of felt threatened by migration from other countries. I spent a lot of time trying to understand the Euro crisis and met people both in debtor countries who felt that the Euro was, um, was, was emasculating their political systems and destroying their public services. And then also people in creditor countries like Germany and Finland and the Netherlands who worried that the siesta classes in, in Southern Europe were frittering away their savings and their money and kind of endangering them. I've met a lot of people who were on both sides of the, the refugee crisis, both people who were looking for for safety and life chances, but also people who were terrified of them coming in. I spent time in Turkey where President Erdogan saw the opportunity of opening the borders as a way of bullying Europeans into submission. And then, you know, another kind of angle which is increasingly obvious is the whole question of the internet, which was meant to be bringing people together, but has become something that balkanizes our societies and opens the door for for election interference, for misinformation. And we've seen that in both a lot of these big electoral events like Trump's election and Brexit, but also on COVID, on other areas, you're seeing that increasingly sort of happening. Also, when it comes to, to sort of geopolitics, a lot of the things which were meant to be bringing countries together seem to be actually being turned into kind of into weapons and the most dramatic thing is is to think about trade and technology so the early years of my career were all about looking at ways of building interdependence and seeing how great it would be to get china into the world trade organization and how this would um lead to to a lot of global harmony but nowadays what we read about is much more about sanctions about regulations about people being sort of bullied in different ways and that can go from from really big things which affect thousands of jobs to very visible things like you know who gets access to masks and PPE during the covid crisis equally with technology you know the internet was was meant to be and technological cooperation this was meant to be a really inspiring global thing that would help solve climate change and pandemics etc but instead what we're increasingly seeing is people very worried about foreigners getting access to their networks we've seen the debates about 5G ranges from kind of governmental questions about about these sorts of technologies to people's individual phones and how they're sort of being hacked and messed around with and all of those things mean that people are increasingly nervous about connectivity they're worried about it they see it as a, a risky thing rather than just being a source of opportunity and pleasure so you've already mentioned China now, and as I'm the Asia director, obviously there is a little bit of a focus there and a personal interest on on that part. So let's talk a bit about China, which has quite a prominent role in your book, but has also been one of your key areas of research in the past. You've always been driven sort of by a wish to understand what's going on in Chinese policy elites' heads, what's going on in the mind. 
And arguably, this is becoming a lot harder these days. So maybe a threefold question for you. When you look at Beijing right now, against the background of more than a decade of the conversations, exchanges and debates that you've had, what worries you most? And where do you still see some of the like, big ideas and maybe even opportunities on the horizon? Then maybe we can also turn towards how much of a threat China's understanding of its own role in the world um, you see for Europe. Okay, those are quite big questions. Um, I'm going to sort of look at it from this question of, of sort of connectivity and globalization. What One of the things which I think people have got very wrong about connectivity and globalization, not just recently, but for over a century, is that, you know, building interdependence makes conflict and war impossible. So, you know, you can go back to Norman Angel and 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 him being wrong about the First World War. That's not a new sign. But when it comes to relationship with China, it's been particularly prominent that many people thought that China could be socialized into being a global a responsible stakeholder by being integrated into the World Trade Organization and us building all sorts of links with, with China in those ways. I've always been a bit skeptical about how effective that was going to be because of what the Chinese were telling me about what was going on. And in the book, I, I talk about an encounter with a Chinese academic, Yan Shui Tong, on my first trip to China, where I was asking lots of people about EU-China cooperation and, and what people wanted from it. And everyone else had talked in rather bland terms about win-win cooperation and working together on global issues. And Yan Shui Tong said, when we go to war with America, we'd like you at the very least to stay neutral. And this was quite a shock to, to me because People, nice, kind of polite Europeans and Americans didn't really talk about war in those terms. And if they did, they they might say if we go to war rather than when we go to war. But also, this was exactly what was not meant to be happening because we just opened the World Trade Organization to China. They just joined. There was kind of huge amount of contact between our different countries. The kind of consensus amongst Westerners was that China would have to adopt Western ways of doing stuff or it would fail. And because the Chinese government didn't want to fail, they'd have to adopt Western ways of doing things. So we'd see a kind of process of convergence, which would lead to harmony. Yan Shui Tong at that time was a bit of an outlier. Most people weren't talking in those terms. But now everybody's talking about a conflict between China and America. And what's interesting is that the way that they're thinking about that conflict as well, because Back in Yen Shui Tong's day, what he was most focused on was, was Taiwan and the idea of some sort of hot war between China and America. That's obviously not disappeared as a threat, and certainly people are very nervous about that at the moment. But what's equally clear is that whether or not there is a war over Taiwan or the South China Sea or some kind of islands that are going on, every day there is competition which is pretty frightening, which is going on, which doesn't meet a kind of formal definition of war, but is more about the, the weaponization of, of connectivity. And we're seeing that through, you know, attempts to bully each other over access to masks, to, to different types of technology. We're seeing entities lists being brought out, which shut Chinese companies out of American systems. We're seeing China reciprocating in its way. And that is leading to a kind of fundamental rethinking of globalization. In America, they talk about decoupling and buy American and teaming up with, with more like-minded countries. But 
maybe even more interesting, and this is sort of an attempt to answer your question about Chinese thinking, some of the most interesting thinking is about globalization and connectivity itself. And this is happening from the top down with Xi Jinping talking about dual circulation and rethinking China's economy, not as a single space, but as two economies. One economy, which is about the internal circulation, which is about how China can become less dependent on technology and resources and demand from the rest of the world so that it's it's more secure in itself. And they're literally trying to, to build all of the key technologies internally to either steal them or uh, innovate or buy up this the IP that they need in order to, to do that so that the internal circulation can be much stronger. But even more dramatically, it's kind of rethinking the external circulation, which is China's links with the rest of the world. I mean, lots of debates about the Belt and Road Initiative and the infrastructure that China is building between itself and dozens of other countries around the world. And what's interesting about the external circulation is the extent to which the Chinese are overtly talking about trying to make other people more dependent on China and to use their links with the rest of the world to shape the world and to, as tool as as a currency of power. And that is both very new and very interesting, but it's also very old and draws on centuries of Confucian tradition. And one of the very interesting parts of the book is where I kind of talk about some of these intellectual debates amongst Chinese people, which make sense of the way that they're thinking about networks and about power, which are both very interesting in and of themselves, but also quite different to the way that Europeans and Americans are thinking about connectivity. And that, I think, could both lead to quite a lot of tension between uh, Europeans and Americans and Chinese, but also can lead to quite a lot of confusion. Because if we don't understand what their assumptions are and what it is that they're trying to do, we might end up severely misreading what China's doing in its foreign policy and its economic policy. Where do you see Europe's role in that? Do you see Europe's role there as a kind of mediator between the two sides? Or do you think Europe has no clue what the Chinese are thinking, really, or has no interest in it? Is Europe already kind of decided and has abandoned the Yan Xiutong uh, motto of staying neutral um, and has already chosen sides? Where would you situate the Europeans in that conversation at the moment? Well, I think it's worth going back to, to sort of basics about what people hope to get out of connectivity. And in my sort of book, I kind of argue that increasingly connectivity is both giving people sort of reasons to compete with each other by, by creating tensions, more envy between different countries, making them fear a loss of control, is giving them an opportunity because we're so bound up with each other. And it's creating these sort of new weapons which people are using to compete for inf influence by weaponizing all of the different forces which were meant to be bringing us together, many of which we've spoken about already. And that is something which opens the way for you know Russia to try and cut people off from its gas and to interfere in elections, for Turkey to, to try and blackmail people with migration or Belarus to do the same thing. But ultimately, there are only three powers that are strong enough to try and shape the entire way that connectivity works. And they are China, the EU, it's in America. And we all have quite different philosophies. I think from an American perspective, in the past, the US had a very universalist way of looking at the world because it was the, the number one power. And you had a sort of US-centric financial system with the dollar and a US-centric internet. And that created a lot of power for the US. And it meant that the US was very focused on, on thinking about the control of hubs 
and and how you could be a gatekeeper deciding who was in and out of 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 uh, of the system by controlling these hubs into the networks we've seen them also using their control over these flows of information to spy on other people snowden revealed sort of mass surveillance so those are some of the big ways that the americans have thought about about global networks from a chinese perspective going back to confucian times they're less focused on the sort of hubs but they're more focused on on how many ties you have with other players so how many links you have with other players and also how central you are to the to the system so you know everyone knows that china used to describe itself as the middle kingdom and one of the ways of understanding the belt and road initiative is to try and create a a world order that's centered around china where all roads lead to beijing and where China has therefore relationships with everybody and can can play them off against each other. And in Confucian terms, these relationships always have to be very hierarchical and you reward people depending on how loyal they and how nice they are to you. And that sort of, I think, being borne out in Chinese foreign policy at the moment, and you can see quite different ways of relating to different countries, but also ways of trying to punish countries that are, are not uh, living up to Chinese standards. Europeans, on the other hand, I tend to have a much more benign view of connectivity and interdependence. We sort of see it as traditionally as removing power politics, and we are less focused on the ties and the, the hubs and more on the rules which govern the system. The EU is a kind of giant network. To join it, you have to implement 80,000 pages of, of legislation uh, as the entry price. And when we built up links with the rest of the world, we tried to get people to sign up to our standards and our rules. And we're still still doing that with, uh, you know, one of the famous ways we've done that is with GDPR, the privacy regulations, where we basically try to, to force other people around the world to, to sign up to European rules. Um, there's a lot of talk about the Brussels effect and how that could work in, in different areas. And I think that Europeans now are having to slightly rethink their approach to the world because it's clear that interdependence isn't always removing conflict that not all interdependence is the same if you're more dependent on other countries than they are on you that puts you in a position of of weakness but there is a lot that Europeans can do to both preserve the sort of values and the interests that they believe in within the European space and then also to to think about how they they relate to some of the other great powers but it's not going to be a sort of utopia where we can have all of the good things out of connectivity and none of the bad things. And that's why, you know, one of the central features of my book is to say that we need to wake up to the fact that you can't actually have all of the good features of connectivity without the bad features. And therefore, rather than going for some sort of final solution where we can have a a perfectly uh, well-ordered multilateral world. What we need to do instead is to sort of develop some therapy so that we can cope with with the downsides and and survive in a world where there's a lot of scary things going on. And I think that is something which, which Europeans need to do. And I've got some quite concrete thoughts about how you could do that in the book, particularly in the last chapter. 
We'll get to that in just a minute, but maybe let me play devil's advocate here for, for one second. So this week, the State of the Union address of Ursula von der Leyen um, made a big focus on actually connectivity, which was at the heart of, of her approach in terms of situating Europe in the world of the future. And she was talking about building ties, not dependencies, and was referencing to China building dependencies rather than ties. Um, so if you say, we could say, maybe the, is the book at the moment counterintuitive? What does it have to offer as a response to what Ursula von der Leyen is trying to do at the moment with the Geopolitical Commission moving out, building ties, the new global gateway, as it's called, the connectivity strategy of the European Union? How does it fit into that? One of the, the biggest sources of power in this world is ties, it's connect connections with the rest of the world. As I said earlier, there are lots of advantages in it. It drives prices down. It gives us new technologies. It allows us to, to do things more efficiently. These are all wonderful things. But at the same time, every one of those ties is a potential vulnerability and has a downside. And if we're wide-eyed about that, then we can do stuff to make it less risky. So if you build a trade relationship with other countries, it will create efficiencies. It will help certain bits of the economy, but it might hurt other people. And it might mean that people's wages get driven down, that people lose their jobs, etc. So one of the important things is having a focus on those who are the losers as well as the winners, not pretending that everything's win-win. And then you can build policies to try and help people and try and protect them. As I said, not all ties are identical. So sometimes you get asymmetric interdependence where one side needs the other side more than others. So we need to make sure that we don't put ourselves in a position where we can be blackmailed by others. We, we've done that very well when it comes to our energy policy. Many member states were in a situation where they could easily be blackmailed by the Russians because they were over-dependent on Russian uh, oil and gas. There's nothing wrong with using Russian oil and gas Uh, well, there might be something wrong with using any oil and gas, but, but there's nothing particularly wrong about using Russian oil and gas if you have other options as well. And if Russia shuts you off, you can use Algerian gas or LNG or, or, um, or um, renewable fuels. Um, and that is the, the key, is building the relationships in a way that the market, which is what Europeans prefer, can, can actually work um, and where you're not open to political blackmail. But um, that's only really possible if we're conscious of the, the downside and we start systematically working out how we can be resilient, how we can shape relationships so that they, they work in our interests. And that is something which is very hard to do if you assume that everything is simply about the market and about prices and that, that this isn't about politics. And ultimately, this is about politics. This is a political project, a geopolitical project. So her slogan's right. The idea of building links is right. But what you need to do then is to think geopolitically when you build these ties and make sure that they are done in a way which doesn't leave us vulnerable to others, but instead gives us access to the benefits, but also means that we have alternatives so that we don't end up putting ourselves in a position where we can be blackmailed. We could add here maybe two concrete examples. That would be fantastic. I think two concrete steps that you'd say if you had an appointment with Ursula von der Leyen tomorrow, drawing on the conclusions from your book, this is exactly what Europe needs to do. I think that could be helpful in terms of just kind of illustrating what the book is about and illustrating what the way forward, the agenda forward looks like. A couple of concrete examples for 
we'll surf on their line. Well, one big area which we've been thinking about for a long time is the whole question of international role of the euro and the fact that we have often found that we weren't able to implement our policies because uh, the US was able to impose its views on us through its control of the dollar. So the classic example on that, the wake-up call was our approach to Iran, where Europeans wanted to uphold the the JCPOA and not introduce sanctions on on Iran until Iran stopped complying with it. And the Americans um, forced European companies that had signed contracts with Iran to to withdraw from Iran um, because they were scared of being shut out of the American market. Um, So in order to do that, you both need to, to build the euro into more of a global reserve currency so that you can use that and you're less dependent on the dollar. But also, ultimately, if you want to make it expensive for people to weaponize the global financial system. And the best way to do that is to have credible threats, which you could aim at other people if they do try to implement uh, these sorts of policies. And there is talk about having a, a sort of collective defense instrument amongst Europeans where if uh, the US or China or Russia tried to take measures which would undermine European companies that were following European foreign policy provisions and, and international law, that you would take similar measures against their companies. We've done that traditionally in trade to stop people using mercantilism uh, against us and to keep markets open. And I think we should do the same in the financial sphere. Another example is when it comes to to technologies. There is a real danger that we end up in a world where the, the kind of core technological infrastructure and the standards and norms are set in China and in other players and where we become overly dependent on them. We rush in to sign up to 5G systems with the Chinese because they look cheaper in the short run. And then in the end, we find that our industrial development is stymied as a result of that and that we're bound into systems over which we have very little control. And I think there, um, you know, we've been thinking very hard about building a toolkit which can help us make sure that it that we don't end up in that sort of situation there's both the sort of defensive measures that you need to take so that you can monitor any investments into the into the european uh, system and and look at the threats which they pose but then there's a more proactive question which is how do we build an infrastructure for innovation where european companies can operate at scale and that does mean creating a real european single market for digital products and it does mean having massive investments in in education in science and also using regulation to make sure that there is space for for Europeans to have a protected home market as well. Because if not, the danger is that all fledgling European companies will just get bought up by Chinese and by um, or by American companies and that we will never be able to develop anything at scale. On this very happy note, thank you, Mark, for giving us a sneak preview into your book. There is one thing left to do on this podcast, and just because uh, you're the guest, you're not going to be let off of this one. This is our bookshelf section. So, Mark, what's on your bookshelf beyond your book right now? My book is part of a rethinking about uh, this kind of globalized world. And what's very interesting is how many people who, like me, are kind of big believers in internationalism, uh, being forced to to think about various different aspects of it in a different way. So I'll just mention a few of the books which I found very interesting, which are sort of coming out at the moment. One 
book which we talked about on this podcast before was was called Doom by Neil Ferguson, which is looking at how we deal with existential risk and the way that that um, shapes politics and our kind of understanding of that in the world. Another one is, is shut down by Adam Tooze, which is looking at how people are dealing with the with with COVID, and it's a fantastic effort at writing the definitive book about a crisis which isn't yet over. Parag Khanna has written a book called Move, which is thinking about another of these elements of globalization, which is demography, which is obviously one of the central battlegrounds, which I talked about. And Amory Slaughter has written a fascinating book called Renewal, which is really a big rethinking of, of American foreign policy. It's kind of interspersed with her own personal dilemmas in the recent time. It's quite a, a fascinating and remarkable book by somebody who's been thinking a lot about these issues. So those are a few books which I've been enjoying a lot in the last few weeks. Fantastic. And for our listeners, I will add one more, which is called China Unbound, A New World Disorder by Joanna Chu, which will come out on the 28th of September. It's a fantastic look at China's new role in the world and what it means for our way of life here in Europe and our complicity and our greed in it as well. So I'm very much looking forward to reading that shortly. And of course, I recommend to take a look at The Age of Unpeace by Mark Leonard. And there's a little special for our podcast audience that we can offer. You can download now parts of the intro of Mark's book from where you normally download this podcast, read by the author. So that's a special treat. Just check it out for wherever you check out this podcast normally. If you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know by writing about it on your social media page or ours. But above all, please give us a good rating and review on whichever platform you use to download this podcast. But for now, thank you very much, Mark, for uh, doing this little experiment of being a guest on your own show. Um, it's thank you from Mark Leonard, myself, Janka Ertl, and it's goodbye. The editor of this week's podcast is Marlene Riedel, and the research was done by Lucy Halpenthal. Mm-hmm.